Hello, and welcome to the Logistics Management Podcast Series. My name is Jeff Berman. I'm Group News Editor for Logistics Management Magazine and also the Peerless Media Supply Chain Group. Today, it's a real pleasure to welcome Chuck Baker to our podcast. Chuck serves as president of the Washington, D.C.-based American Short Line and Regional Railroad Association, also known as ASLRRA. Chuck started as president of the organization back in February of 2019. Prior to that, over the course of his 15-year career in the railroad industry, he was a partner at Chambers, Conlin, and Hartwell, where in addition to the ASLRRA, he represented clients including the National Railroad Construction and Maintenance Association, known as NRC, the One Rail Coalition, the American Railway Development Association, as well as Class One Railroads, Norfolk Southern, and also Canadian National. Chuck also currently serves as chairman of the board of the One Rail Coalition. Chuck is a native of Baltimore, Maryland, and a graduate of Rice University in Houston, Texas. He lives on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. with his wife, Sarah, and his two daughters, Nora and Lila. Hey, Chuck, welcome to our podcast. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to do it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you on. Um, and just as an aside to our audience, uh, Chuck and I have met over the years at uh, the Rail, Rail Trends Conference, uh, which is in New York City every year, hosted by Tony Hatch, who's also a good friend of logistics management. Uh, so, Chuck, why don't we just get started? Not everyone in our audience uh, may not be familiar with ASL RRA. So why don't you tell us just a little bit about the organization in terms of, you know, its mission and its membership, uh, things that you guys set out to do and accomplish on a daily basis, in other words. Sure, I'm happy to. And I, I know most of your readers have a pretty good familiarity with the freight world and freight rail. So I won't go back to to when the earth cooled, but we, we are the we are the trade association based in DC representing the short line freight railroads. Uh, there are about 600-ish uh, freight railroads in the United States. The big seven are the class one railroads. Those are the ones most uh, normal people have heard of, right? Norfolk Southern, CSX, Union Pacific, BNSF, CNCP, KCS. The, there are, not everyone knows, there are actually another 593-ish railroads in the freight railroads in the country and those are collectively the short line railroads short lines a little bit of a colloquialism um technically it's class two and three railroads but it essentially means the smaller ones Um, and if you want to think about kind of the basics of what a short line railroad is they're largely the first mile and last mile of the freight rail network and if you want to go back um, a couple decades to kind of the early 80s and throughout the 80s, which is when most most modern short lines formed, these essentially used to be the kind of unprofitable and unloved and kind of questionable or marginal sort of branch lines of the bigger class one railroads. Sure. So if you imagine, you know, take a Union Pacific or something that they've got a main line going from L.A. to Chicago, and then maybe they've got a branch line that goes from Albuquerque down to Smithville in, you know, in New Mexico. And they've got maybe two or three customers on that line, and it's 40 miles of track in a tough area, and they're not really making any money on it. They're probably losing money on it. Um it's hard to maintain, it's hard to staff, it's hard to market, it doesn't really fit into the national picture. What they did, which turned out to be 
kind of a win-win for everyone when you look back 40 years later, because what they did was they sold that line to mm-hmm. a local entrepreneur, right? So you found, um, you found Mike Jones, who lives in Smithville, and you said, hey, Mike, uh, why don't you buy this railroad? Sometimes it's for a dollar. Sometimes it's for a couple million dollars. Uh, right. And instead of it being an unprofitable branch line of the UP, it turns into all of a sudden it's the Albuquerque and Smithville short line railroad. And, and then, and then the new owner of that right now he can join. He can join the Smithville Chamber of Commerce. He joins the Rotary Club. His kids play on the Little League team with all the local businesses. He lives there. His whole life becomes about how do I get one more carload, one more customer kind of onto this little railroad that's mine, that's my baby. Right. Uh, and right. And so they market the heck out of it. They figure out how to make it work, sometimes with like duct tape and wire, right? Like, <laughs> Maybe his cousin maintains the track. Maybe his wife manages the office. Um, you know, he finds a guy to operate the train. Maybe at first they only operate on Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays. And like, uh, you know, if there's an emergency on Sunday, and, and they try to grow it. Um, and you know, and it's worked over the course of the country. It's actually worked remarkably well. And there's 600 of these, and quite a you know they've mostly maintained and preserved these lines, which was the original goal. And in many, many cases, they've grown them. And some of these short lines have really grown up. And now they're, you know, they're kind of growing, thriving small businesses. Uh, and and what's beautiful in representing them, which is why I kind of feel really lucky to have my job, is they are known for very, very friendly, kind of flexible local service, okay. right? Like when the customer asks for you know, hey, can you do this? The answer essentially 100% of the time is yes. And then we'll figure out how. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and then, hey, if you need a switch twice on Sunday, like no problem. Oh, you need an emergency service at 3 a.m.? Like, all right, like I'll get out of bed and provide it myself. Uh, and so they always want more volume. They want to say yes. And, you know, and they're not managing, they're not managing a 20,000 mile complicated network, right? They're managing those 100 miles of track. Uh, yeah. And so they can they can pretty much always figure it out and make it work. And so their customers Chuck, like them, their you. communities like them, um, and it's a pretty it's a pretty good story. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, Chuck, um, when we look at sort of what's happening now within the current state of the short line market, what are some of the sort of the you know the the top of mind things that that uh, you're focusing on? Uh, I guess as ASL RRA overseeing that, and just from an industry perspective, what are sort of the hot button issues as far as uh, from your perch, if you will? Sure. Well, so you know the state, the state of the market is always a, a challenging one to answer. Kind of representing the short lines, right? Because there's there's 600 of them. They're in 49 states, and and I sort of joke, but like if you know one of them, you know one of them. Um, yeah. they, they've each got their own. <laughs> their own market, their own unique group of customers, their own connections. But, but holistically, uh, you know, right through the pandemic and up until now, they, they continue to sort of just be like head down, grind it out, do your very best for your existing customers sometimes, which is only five, 10, 15 companies, you know, and try to get one more car load from those customers and try to get one more, one new customer tomorrow. Okay. Right? And that's kind of how they, they live. So sometimes, you know, like the state of the overall market doesn't actually feel all that important to them. 
you know, they, they kind of wake up and they do their best for their existing customers and, and try to get one more. Now it, it is, they, of course, you know, the way I explained what short lines are, you can obviously sort of figure out from that, that essentially all of their traffic either comes to, to, or from a class one railroad. Um, sure. So, uh, so the state of class one railroad service, and maybe we'll get into that more later, is obviously of huge concern to them. And I think yeah. I'm probably not breaking any news to any of your listeners when I say like, that's been a big challenge over the last couple of years. Yes. Uh, and, you know, there are times where short lines get just as frustrated as our customers are. You know, sometimes there are some short lines who think of themselves more as like a shipper representative than they do as a railroad in a sense. Okay. Uh, so th they can get very frustrated by challenges, but they also they can also help mitigate those challenges, right? Like sometimes we refer to ourselves as sort of the shock absorbers of the system, right? Whereas even mm -hmm. if the main the main long haul trunk line is sort of struggling to operate at peak efficiency, if the short line is providing really friendly, flexible responsive service at the first and last mile that can at least make those shippers um, sometimes sort of feel better. Uh, even if it's not really improving the overall cycle time, at least, you know, the stuff's getting picked up and delivered with a, you know, with more sort of flexibility and responsiveness. And so we do our, we do our best to do that and, and just sort of power through. Okay, great, great. And you had just talked about service levels, obviously on a class one basis, um, class one service levels have been uh, under a fair amount of scrutiny uh, by certain shipper groups and obviously uh, over at the STB, the Surface Transportation Board. Um, how do you sort of view the big picture when it comes to railroad service levels? I guess primarily in, in this instance um, from the short lines perspective. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, like we were just saying, it, it is very obviously and very publicly been a really tough couple of years. Um, and, you know, I think some of that, and I will also probably get into that, some of that is driven by, uh, you know, COVID and the historically tight labor markets coming out of that. And some of that is perhaps um, the Class 1 Railroad's own doing through um, perhaps too aggressive of a PSR implementation or a mm -hmm. um, an, an inefficient PSR implementation, but nonetheless, I, I think that there's there's some green shoots of good news out there. Uh, the class ones, to their credit, have been very publicly open about you know what our service levels are not where they need to be. They're not what mm -hmm. the customers deserve or expect, and and we you know, or they, uh, but they'll say, we are hiring aggressively to fix that. Uh, and I think you're starting to see now that we all get weekly or bi-weekly service numbers because the STB has mandated that they be published, you're starting to see, I think, some inflection points in the service um, and they correlate pretty closely to inflection points in the staffing levels. And so you're starting to see, uh, trains held online uh, dropping, you're starting to see velocity tick back up, you're starting to see dwell tick back down, you're starting to see on-time on time performance and on-time delivery, which is the real metric that counts, uh, tick back up. So we, we are, I think we are off of the bottom and starting to head in the right direction. That, that doesn't, you know, 
I, I'm not a, I'm not a Pollyanna and I'm not an idiot. I'm trying to be in, insensitive to customers who've had a really, really frustrating couple of years. Right. And that doesn't, that doesn't excuse frankly, pretty bad service over the last couple of years, but I do think it's starting to get a little bit better. That's great. Um, you know, you had uh, mentioned how to, uh, the the notion of hiring aggressively amid, amid what is obviously still a very tight labor market. That's obviously a big factor across a whole ton, a whole host of sectors, especially the rails. Um, you, you have tight labor availability. You have inflation. You have declining GDP. Um, the financial markets are obviously very rocky right now. Uh, with that as sort of a backdrop, Chuck, how do you sort of view the impact? of current economic uh, conditions that we're seeing these days on short lines and freight rail um, in general? Yeah, you know, the the tight labor market has obviously been unprecedented over the last year or so. And I think that the, the class one railroads would tell you that that is by far the biggest driver in their uh, in their service challenges, just frankly, yeah. just not enough bodies. And I, I think that is that is true. Uh, for short lines, it's slightly less dramatic of a problem, but nonetheless a problem. Um, we've we've seen, you know, historically, if you go back uh, when I talked to my short line railroad members on the list of problems they had, I never heard about we have trouble finding people, right? right. Because we don't really need all that many people. And it's a pretty good job and it's a local job. You largely get to sleep in your own bed. You get to be part of a typically a pretty nice um, company culture, friendly, um, and, you know, pays pretty well. And we just never really had trouble hiring people. We, we've had more trouble over the last year than we've ever had before. And there's been higher churn, right? Like, you know, if we pay the equivalent of $30 an hour, uh, and the local warehouse used to pay $17 an hour, you know, we were going to get the people we needed. If the warehouse now pays 25 an hour, um, that's a lot closer, you know, and the warehouse mm -hmm. is in, indoor work and it's nine to five and we're, we're outdoor work and we're not always nine to five. And so it's gotten harder. There's been, there's been more churn, but short lines have largely been able to, to make it work and, you know, um, and get the people they need. Uh, but obviously the tight labor market has really affected the service levels at our, at our class one partners who are just doing things at a completely different scale, right? Like sure. they need 7,000 people or 10,000 people, you know, operating their trains, depending on the size of the company. And, you know, all of a sudden, if you're, if you've got 10% fewer than you needed, now you're down 700 people. Um, and that's gonna, you know, that because you know, that becomes a pretty big challenge for them. Yeah. So, so it's been a huge problem. Um, and it's a weird, you know, COVID's a real black swan event. And these labor markets um, are, you know, they're unprecedented and we're just not used to, you know, having it be so hard to hire. And so they're, they're adjusting and, um, and, and working on it. And an awful lot of people are in the hiring pipeline right now and in training. So we, we do think it's starting to get better, but it's been, it's been a, <laughs> been a massive challenge. Yeah. No, um, to, to say the least. Yeah. The, the other part of the question you asked about was inflation. Um, and yeah, that, that is really like, there's real sticker shock uh, around some of the short lines now for buying what they've historically wanted to buy. Um, 
I don't know that we're going to have time to get into a, a conversation, which is pretty fun, about all the federal grant money that's available out there for for infrastructure grants. And, you know, class ones typically don't ask for that or get any of that, but short lines happily ask for that. Um, you know, and we think that there's a public policy rationale for why the, uh, the federal government would want to invest in maintaining and preserving short line freight railroads. And so we ask for that and we get some of that. And the Chrissy Grant Program, for instance, is the program that we get the most funds out of. Uh, and a lot of people use that to just rehab rail and ties, you know, just buy mm-hmm. new steel and buy new ties. And we've got people who are looking at literally a 100% price increase in the cost of rail over the last year. Uh, so, you know, you read about headline like 8% inflation, um, but that is like, we wish it was 8% in some of the stuff we were buying. You've got people who are paying, you know, $1,000 a ton for steel a year ago who are now paying $2,000 a ton, Oof. for instance. Yeah. You know, so if you're trying to lay 10 miles of new continuously welded rail, um, you know, and you thought it was going to cost you $3 million, now it's going to cost you $6 million. That's a pretty big stunner if you're a small business. Uh, and so we do have some real challenges with inflation. We'll make it work because that's what short lines do. Um, you know, they'll figure out how to use, use old rail or make something last longer or mm-hmm. find a different way around the mountain, but it, it is a real, real challenge. Yeah. No, I, I, no, no doubt about that. So just two more quick ones here, Chuck, before we wrap up, um, uh, given that you guys are obviously in, in DC, uh, you're obviously on top of all the many regulatory issues surrounding the industry. Uh, a couple that come to mind, obviously, is uh, EP711, uh, more commonly known as uh, reciprocal switching, also competitive switching. And uh, more recently, uh, the Freight Rail Shipping Fair Market Act, obviously two very separate things. But um, and I'm, I'm, there's others, too, uh, to be sure. But what's sort of going on on the on the front as it relates to EP 7711 and the Freight Rail Shipping Fair Market Act from from your perspective? Sure. Yeah. I mean, they're obviously related The 711, the reciprocal switching is a STB generated um, regulation that they're considering, whereas the the, the freight rail Fair Market Shipping Act is a congressionally generated bill that they're considering that would reauthorize the Surface Transportation Board and and push them on a on a variety of issues, including kind of inserting service delivery standards into private contracts and demurrage yeah. and um, and rethinking kind of the common carrier definition and um, some emer- new emergency powers for STB. Um, we, we've got real concerns with both both of those, which we've said, you know, publicly. So, um, I, I, you know, and they come from a place of sort of deep shipper frustration with the uh, Class 1 railroads over the last few years. And um, I want to start by, you know, acknowledging that that's a very real frustration. Um, and I, I don't think that the, and, and like I said earlier, sometimes the short lines feel that too. Yeah. Uh, very acutely. I, I don't think that the appropriate reaction from any railroads, short lines or class ones, is nothing can change ever and go pound sand. Uh, that being said, the the U.S. freight rail network 
writ large, and if you zoom out beyond like a couple of years of intense frustration, it has been around for almost 200 years, is the best freight rail network in the entire world, uh, and is a real source of competitive kind of enduring advantage for U.S. rail shippers. Yeah. Uh, and it's part of the reason why we have the world's leading agricultural industry and why we have the world's most efficient industrial um, economy and why U.S. manufacturing is so productive and why we're able to compete on a global scale, even with the high cost of labor here in the U.S. So I, I think we need to be very careful about sort of radical restructurings of the freight rail industry just because of a couple of years of, of frankly, bad service. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we, we have real concerns with both of them. We think the reciprocal and, and both of them, the concerns come down to we're concerned it would do more harm than good. Uh, the reciprocal switching, we, we think would, you know, while it may benefit a couple of individual shippers in individual circumstances who would get rail to rail competition that they don't have or at least don't have in a as easy easy of a way as they would like right now um we think that overall writ large it would it would add sort of extra touches and extra switching into the network which if you know on a whole will make for a less efficient network and will also just um you know sort of tilt the balance in an unproductive way um towards towards shippers and what's a you know, what's supposed to be sort of an arm's length, um, arm's length transactions. Uh, and so we, we think that that would be, at the end of the day, cause more harm than good. And then same with the various provisions in the Freight Rail Shipping Act. Um, some of the stuff in there we think is appropriate. You know, for instance, the bill proposed authorizing a, a significant amount of extra funds for the Surface Transportation Board to do their job. And we're actually supportive of that. We have no problem with that. Um, but some of the things in there, like um, mandating service delivery standards be put into private contracts without taking into account all the give and take that goes into negotiating a private contract, we think is inappropriate. There's a provision in there about freezing rates in the case of a service emergency, which we think is an inappropriate uh, kind of government intervention into a private market. Uh, telling the Surface Transportation Board they have to do a reverse demurrage rule as opposed to just letting them consider doing it, which is what they're already doing now, we think is kind of unnecessarily interventionist. Um, and, uh, you know, and at the end of the day, we think it would do more more harm than good. Yeah, no, no question about it. Um, and just to wrap up, um, the recently averted uh, rail labor stalemate uh, has hopefully come to a positive ending with uh, the 12 unions uh, reaching uh, tentative agreements or, or working on reaching tentative agreements. Um, there was a lot, there's a lot going on there. Um, and it really was at the forefront of uh, many national news reports to be sure. Um, what, what do you think are sort of the next steps here? Um, a, a crisis averted, so to speak. Um, is, this is probably the best outcome, I guess, that uh, could have been expected, you know, certainly BC alternative, right? Right. Well, certainly, you know, I mean, a a voluntary agreement, which is what they got at the, the very sort of 11th hour, yes. is, is the right outcome. It, it is tentative. Like you said, it does have to be 
ratified by all of the unions. Uh, I, I think that'll happen. Uh, you know, frankly, the unions did pretty darn well in that yeah. negotiation. I, I think the class one railroad C-suites are feeling a little, um, a little beat up by that negotiation and, and, you know, they not, didn't do quite as well as they're used to doing in those agreements. So I think if you're the unions, you probably have a lot to be, a lot to be proud of in, in kind of taking advantage of the moment and the white house and the, the political sympathies and, and getting a pretty good, pretty good deal out of the railroads, frankly, yeah. um, you know, with 24% raise over five years, plus thousand dollar bonuses each year, plus no real changes to the healthcare split plus, you know, some, some movement on some of the sick days and, um, and scheduling issues. Uh, so crisis temporarily averted and hopefully kind of permanently averted. I, I think, I guess if I have two takeaways, one, just kind of putting myself back from a couple of weeks ago, it was a very, very frustrating time for short lines, right? We had, like you said, it was a major national news story. So I had lots of people in the industry and lots of friends out of the industry, like my mom, you know, friends who, who just, you know, kind of know that I do rail and that's about it reaching out and saying, Chuck, what are you doing to avert the strike? <laughs> and it's like, well, it's not my deal. You know, I'm not in the room, so I'm not, there's not a lot I can do to avert the strike. I was writing letters and urging, urging settlement and urging Congress to be ready to mandate a settlement if one wasn't reached um, and, you know, helping urge there to be a good presidential emergency board appointed before that. But, um, you know, I was a little bit of an observer, like, like a lot of people were. And um, I'm glad I got worked out. The, the other thing that I would urge everyone, and I, I know I'm preaching to the choir on this, so it's not some unique take, but now that this is, these agreements are tentatively agreed to at least, uh, it's really time to get back to good railroading. And it's also time to rebuild those relationships with labor unions. Um, you know, short lines are largely not unionized. And, and the ones that are, they tend to have pretty good relationships with their with their unions and their employees. It's a little easier as a smaller company, I think, you know, where everyone kind of sleeps at home every night. Um, yeah. But I think for the class one railroads and for the whole freight rail industry as a whole, you know, we don't want to be in a hostile relationship with our employees or their unions, right? Like there's always going to be some tension, but that that is not a emotionally healthy place to be and it's not good for railroading. Um, and so I'm hopeful the new agreement helps with that, helps with retention uh, and that this is a little bit of a chance for a fresh start and we can get back to a kind of a healthier, more productive, happier relationship. You know, we pay awfully well, so there's really no reason that we can't you know, have, have pretty happy employees and make this job like the, it ought to be the, to me, the most desirable job in blue collar America. Yeah. Uh, you know, it certainly pays like it is. So, um, so I, I'd like to see us all get back to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I believe, um, as of today, we're, we're almost at the end of September here. I believe three of the 12, uh, rail labor unions have, uh, come to, uh, these agreements so or ratifying their tentative labor agreements with the rails as per the uh, national carriers conference committee so hopefully we right. see that number number rise in the, in the coming weeks um well listen chuck this brings us to the end of our allotted time for today's podcast and uh 
on behalf of Logistics Management Magazine and also the Peerless Media Supply Chain Group, I'd like to offer up a big thanks for spending some time with us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I always uh, enjoy reading your stuff. And now I get to say I enjoy being on your podcast too. Yeah, absolutely. And we look forward to having you back uh, down the road or, or down the tracks, I should say. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, for those of you listening in, if you want to learn a little bit more about the American Short Line and Regional Railroad Association, check out their website, simply aslrra.org. Dot org that is and also for those of you on twitter please go ahead and give us a follow uh the logistics management that is at logistics mgmt and uh please go ahead and subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast just search for supply chain 24 7. thanks everybody have a great day and we'll see you next time <music>